Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to week two in a series that we started last week that we are calling Money Talks. And if you are just joining us this week, or if you're a guest, thanks for being here. And just to kind of catch you up to speed, basically what we've been saying in this series is we've been saying that money is one of those issues in our culture uh, that tends to be sort of a focal point of our society. Um, that it is sort of a, a central theme, that it's on our minds, that it's all around us all the time. And you can kind of see that from the video that we just showed a little bit. And yet we said at the same time, for whatever reason, whenever you bring up a topic like this in a church setting, it can sometimes be met with a little bit of resistance, sometimes a little skepticism. It ends up kind of being sort of a taboo topic to talk about in church. And, and, and we know that. In fact, if you're a person that's investigating Jesus and you're just kind of coming around, my guess is you're probably thinking, oh man, church is talking about money. That's all they ever talk about and those type of things. And we understand that. We understand that there's kind of a taboo sort of topic as it relates to money and the church. And yet the reason that we said we're doing this series is because when you look into our lives, and you look into the lives of many, many, many people in our society today, what you come to find very clearly is that for many of us, the source of some of our greatest anxiety, the source of some of our greatest fears, and the source of, for some of us, some of our greatest relational tension is really at the heart of that for many of us is money issues. In fact, last week we talked about this. We said that when you look at the number one thing that married couples fight about today in our culture, the number one thing statistically is money. And that shows up in all different kinds of ways, but the thing that married couples are fighting about the most is money. We said that for, for many of us, if you look at what is it that you're the most concerned about, what is it that you're the most anxious about, what are you most likely to lay in bed and worry about? And we said for many of us, it's probably money stuff, whether it's not having enough or trying to figure out how do I get out of debt or, or the crippling weight that that can bring to you when you are in debt. And so, and so because of that, we've said that really the reason we're doing this series is because there's so many pitfalls. This is an area for many of us where, where some of our greatest fears and anxieties lie, relational tension lies. And so because of that, we're doing the series. In fact, a couple, uh, just last week, I let you in on a little secret. And I said, the reason that we're doing this series and the series before this, which if you were here before, we did a series called the, Se the Sex Talk, and we did Money Talks. And I let you in on a secret. And I said, the, the whole reason we're doing these series is because of what we're finding in our counseling sessions. We said in our counseling meetings and our conversations that we're having with people, if there are two areas that people are most prone to blow their life up, it's sex and money. We talked about how the Bible talks about that. We said if there's two issues that your parents are probably least likely to talk to you about, it's probably sex and money, right? And yet these are areas that we are finding um, that there is just a lot, uh, a lot of kind of tension around, a lot of relational anxiety, a lot of those type of things around. So because of that, we said it's no wonder then that God talks so much about money in the Bible, in fact, Jesus himself, we talked about this last week, Jesus talks about money. It's hard to emphasize how much he does. We said that when you look in the, the Gospels, some commentators point out that Jesus talks about money more than heaven and hell combined. He's always talking about money. Nearly a third of Jesus' parables that he gave were about money. Um, in, in the Gospel of Luke, which is the longest of the Gospels, on average, one in seven verses, Jesus is talking about money. He's always talking about money. And so even though we might feel uncomfortable talking about it in a setting like this, Jesus isn't. And he's the one who's always bringing it up. Now, why is that? Well, last week we said the reason that Jesus talks about so much money, we discovered this, is, is because Jesus understood something about money. It's something kind of profound. Here's what Jesus understood. That money isn't really about money. That the money issues that we feel, the anxiety, the, 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 the relational tension that we have in our marriages around money, they're really not about money. 
that Jesus knew this, that our money talks, that it says something. And in particular, Jesus told us that it says something about our heart. In fact, Jesus is the one who most famously coined the phrase, even if you're not a Bible person, my guess is you're probably familiar with this. Jesus said the very, very famous statement, where your treasure is, is where your heart is also. We said, that's actually a really profound statement if you think about it, because what Jesus is saying is this, that the language of our heart is our money. That is to say, the language of our heart is not our feelings, uh, contrary to popular belief. The language of our heart is not um, what we say it is. It, it is our money. So, so to put it this way, it, it doesn't matter what you say your priorities are and what you say your values are, nor does it matter what you feel like your priorities are and you feel like your values are. If it doesn't line up with what your money is saying, then you are misunderstanding your heart. Because Jesus says the window into your heart is ultimately your treasure, our money talks. And so last week, if you were with us, I issued a very, very practical challenge for everybody who is part of our campus. Some of you took me up on this, some of you didn't, and that's okay. But the challenge that I gave you, and you can still do this, by the way, is I said, I want you to take a week and I just want you to listen to your money. That's it. I said, I want, you to, I want you to track every single penny that you're spending. For some of you, you're already doing that. For some of you, you're not. And I said, just track every single penny. And then at the end of the week, look at it and just ask the question, what is my money saying? Because our money talks. And what is it saying about me? And what is it saying about my heart? And it's been kind of fun because I've got a chance to talk to a few of you who have taken this challenge and kind of talk about it a little bit. And, and the one thing I found for, for people who have never done this before, we were talking about it, was unanimously they would say to me, Man, I was so surprised. I felt like this wasn't a thing. And then I looked at my budget and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm spending so much money over here. And I'm like, isn't that crazy how truthful our money is? I would talk to people and they'd be like, you know, the crazy thing is I didn't think that I went out to eat all that much. And then I looked at my budget. And I was like, I go out to eat all the time. And I was like, I totally understand that. That is my, the struggle is real, brother, sister, I'm with you on that one in particular. And so we said that it, it tells the truth and it says something to us about our hearts is what our money is speaking. So now this week, as we're continuing in this series and we're building off last week, I want to look at it again today, another unbelievably powerful um, principle that Jesus gives us as it relates to our money. All right. And the, and the, the, the principle that we're going to look at today we're going to find this today is in a parable in Matthew chapter 25. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to grab them with me. And we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 25 this morning. Okay, Matthew 25. And um, if you are a person that did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that is not a problem at all. We actually have some for you. And so you can reach under the chair in front of you. Hopefully you can find a Bible somewhere there. And Matthew 25 is going to be page on 694. Now, let me also say that if you're a guest with us this morning and you don't own a Bible, if you just don't have one, um, do me a favor, take one, all right? We want that to be a gift from us to you. We think it's really, really important that you have a Bible. So we want you to do that. Write your name in it. Uh, make it a gift from us to you. So Matthew chapter 25, go ahead and flip there. As you're flipping to Matthew chapter 25, let me just kind of tell you um, the, the principle that we're going to find today in this parable, I believe has the power and has the potential to absolutely revolutionize your financial world. I think that if you can get a hold of this principle that we're gonna see today, that if you can actually get a hold of this incredible truth that Jesus is gonna give us today, that it has the potential to lead you to the financial freedom that God desires for you, 
okay? Now, now listen, I understand when I say financial freedom that for many of us in our culture, the way that we tend to interpret that is I have so much money that I don't have to worry about anything. That's how we tend to think of financial freedom. I'm just telling you, that's not necessarily what Jesus is after. The type of financial freedom that God wants to lead us to is actually more powerful than that. It's more liberating than that. So when I say Jesus wants to lead us to financial freedom, what I mean is this. Jesus wants to free us from the worry and the anxiety and the fear that we often have time, have around this issue when we don't like, feel like we have enough. And also he wants to free us from the power and the security and the identity we feel when we do have it. He wants to dissociate our heart altogether from the thing. He wants to free us. And if and this parable we're going to see has the potential to do it. Because I think if there's one thing that all of us are probably, I guess we would all agree on this. All of us know that money has, it can have a very, very strange effect on us. Money has potential to have power over us. I think we all know this. Money has unbelievable power over us. It can. It can be a very intoxicating thing, can it? In fact, there was a study that was done recently uh, a friend of mine passed it forward to me. I thought it was really interesting. It was done by a research team at UCAL Berkeley. And uh, basically what they did is they, they performed a bunch of experiments to try to associate, try to find um, what is uh, the, the effects that wealth has on human behavior. So that was kind of the aim of the study. Now they did a bunch of different experiments and it is amazing some of the stuff they found. In fact, the results were so staggering and they were so kind of, kind of unanimous that um, very quickly this study got a lot of press. And one of the things they did, I can't share the whole thing with you, but I'll just share one of the experiments they did I thought was fascinating, is uh, to study the effects of wealth on human behavior, they set up a monopoly game and they rigged it in, in, in a way that one person was at a clear advantage over the other person. So here's how it would go. Two people would come into a room and they would flip a coin. And uh, so they did this on the University of, uh, like I said, UCAL Berkeley. So two students would come in, they'd flip a coin. Whoever won the coin to toss would be designated player A. Whoever lost the coin toss would be designated player B, all right? And player A had just a set of, of unfair advantages over person B that made it impossible for them to lose. And so let me just give you a few of the advantages they had. So person A uh, started with $2,000. And so that's kind of the conventional way you start Monopoly. Person B started with half as much money. Um, person A, right out of the gate, they were issued kind of the more uh, upscale playing piece. So they were given the Rolls Royce. Uh, person B was given the boot. Like quite literally, they were given the boot, the, the old shoe piece, okay? Uh, person A had the, uh, they had the right to roll two dice. And which, by the way, if they got snake eyes, they were able to go again. Um, person B could only roll one die and didn't even have the opportunity to roll snake eyes, and so they could only roll one die. Person A, every time they passed glow, collected the conventional $200. Person B would only collect $100, okay? So the game's totally rigged, and they did this um, experiment with hundreds and hundreds. In fact, it was almost 1,000 university students, and every time, unanimously, person A won. They couldn't lose. It was rigged and their advantage. Now, what's so fascinating is some of the, the behaviors that they were able to observe in this study. I'll just give you a few things that they noticed. One of the things they noticed in this study is that person A, as they continue to accumulate wealth and become more successful in the game, they were more likely to show signs of dominance. And so, for example, they noticed that at the beginning of the game, they would slide their game piece around the board. And after a while, they would begin tapping it. And then they started smacking it. The more they, the better they did. They're just more signs of outward dominance. They were more rude. 
They would become more short, snippy, and directed, and, and, uh, and speak in directives to person B. Uh, give me Baltic Avenue, you know, give me Reading Railroad or whatever it is. Um, the, the studies had shown that uh, that person was more likely to show outward signs of celebration, pumping their fist. They were more likely to gloat over their victories. And one of the things I thought was kind of funny was between person A and person B, they had a bowl of pretzels. And they noticed something that as person A continued to win and gain more money, they ate more pretzels, and in some cases, all of them <laughs> by themselves, right? And so they just did the study. Now, all that's kind of interesting. Here's the part I thought was crazy. So at the end of the study, they sat down with person A and person B. They had to fill out a survey, and basically they asked them the question. Uh, one of the questions they asked person A was, do you believe you deserve to win the game? And person A unanimously knowing that the game was rigged, would say, yes. And when they asked, why do you feel that you deserve to win the game? Their answers, unanimously, were things like, because of my strategy, because of my skill, because of my buying, even though they knew the game was rigged, right? And so UCAL Berkeley, the researchers basically said, this is a really interesting commentary on the effects that wealth has on people. Now, I don't think we need a study like that to affirm to us that something we already know, which is this, that money can have a very strange power over us. It can. It ha it's intoxicating. It has the ability to make us view others different, to view ourselves different, to view reality different. And, and, and listen, I think this is why, you guys, by the way, the Bible is always constantly warning us about wealth. Always, not that wealth is evil. We talked about this last week. Money is neither moral or immoral. It's neither. There's no moral assignment to money. But there is a, a warning attached to it. And God says, you gotta be careful with this stuff because it's powerful. And it can be used for incredible life-giving things, but it, it can also be a trap. It can also deceive you. It can also intoxicate you. In fact, let me just show you a couple passages. Here's one. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation and they are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. He says, it's a trap. Then look what he says. For the love of money, notice, not money, nothing evil about money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and they've pierced themselves with many sorrows. You see what Paul's saying? He's telling Timothy, listen, be careful. Be careful about that money stuff. I mean, it's, it's not evil. There's nothing bad about money. It's not immoral or moral, but there is a danger, a warning tag that is stamped to it. This is why I believe Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You're gonna serve God or you're gonna serve money. That is to say, you, you can't look to both of those things to be your source of security and identity and value. You can't do that. And, and your heart's gonna compete for those things. Be careful. Here, here's another passage, Proverbs 18, 11. Solomon says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall, look at this, in his own imagination. You see what Solomon is saying? He's the richest man on earth at this point, by the way. And he says, listen, you know how like back in this time, the way they would fortify a city is they'd build a wall around it. That'd be the way they would protect it from outside enemies. He says, a wealthy person thinks of their money like that. It's like their high wall, they, their securities, they, they're just gonna fortify them. But notice what he says, but it's just in their imagination. It's a figment of their imagination. It's an illusion because it's, it's ultimately in the end, it's not gonna provide the security 
that you think it is. We talked about that in last week's parable a little bit. And so the Bible is constantly saying, listen, be careful, be careful, be careful, be careful. And I think the other reason that the Bible tells us to be careful about wealth and about money and about this issue is quite honestly, because God knows that this, this whole thing happens so discreetly that our hearts get intertwined with money in a weird way. And it happens almost in such a sneaky way that for many of us, we don't even know it's happening. We become blind to it, right? I'll just give you an example. So I was telling you about that Monopoly study. My guess is that as I was telling you about that, most of you are like, oh yeah, totally. It's not, that's no surprise that, you know, that when, when people get wealth that it affects the way they think because that's how wealthy people are. We all know how the wealthy people do that. And my guess is all of us can understand that, but probably most of us in this room, my guess is for most of us, we don't think it applies to us. We're like, oh, that's not me. No, no, that's the wealthy people which is fascinating, isn't it? Because there's been studies that have been done recently that says that basically if you live in this country, if you own one car, you have food in the refrigerator, you have clean drinking water and a place to stay, you're in the top one to 3% of the wealthiest people in the history of humanity. And so we're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not wealthy, I'm not wealthy. Well, the rest of human history and the rest of the world would look at you and say, yes, you are. And, and, and so it's so sneaky, man. It's so sneaky. And, and it blinds us. So, so all that to say, not to give you a guilt trip, but all that to say this, how then do we get free? How do we safeguard, our, how do we safeguard ourselves from the settled dominance that money wants to have over our hearts? How do we keep ourselves from this? And how do we, like the Bible says, be cautious in these ways? And so that's where this parable is going to come in today. Because this parable, like I told you, it has a principle within it that I believe has the power to utterly free you. To free you from, from the worry, anxiety, and fear that money brings and the power and the identity and security we find in it as well. All right, so let's take a look at it together. Matthew 25, we're going to start in verse 14. Now, before I jump in here, uh, Jesus is actually in the middle of a speech, giving a long speech, a bunch of different stories and parables. Some of you may know when Jesus would explain spiritual realities, he would oftentimes use illustrations that people would understand, parables, okay, stories. And so he's going to tell a story to help us understand something spiritually. So he says in verse 14, again, remember he's in the middle of a speech, again, it's going to be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and he entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, he gave two bags of gold. To another, he gave one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went off on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work, and he gained five more bags. So also, the one who had two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. All right, so let's just pause there. My guess is that some of you guys are probably familiar with this parable, one of the most famous parables in the Bible. But basically, here's what happens. Jesus says, I want to tell you what my kingdom is like. Or in other words, this parable is intended to help us understand God's economy. That's what he's trying to describe. So he says, so my economy is kind of like this. Once upon a time, there was a very wealthy man, a master, and he had servants that worked for him. And one day he was going to go off on a far, a far off journey. And so he entrusted different amounts of his wealth to his servants. And he said, I want to entrust you with this. Do good with this. And I'm going to come back. And I'm going to give an account for it. 
news. This is the parable that Jesus gives us. Now, before we dig into it, I just want to let you know, to understand this parable, if you really want to understand the heart of it, the key to understanding this parable is actually found in verse 14. So just take a look at what verse 14 says again. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants, check this out, and entrusted his wealth to them. Now this is central to understanding the principle that Jesus is gonna teach us in this parable. Notice the master didn't give his servants money. That's not what it says. He entrusted it to them. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to point out a very, very important reality that the Bible teaches us about God's economy. And that's this, that we are stewards. It's the issue of stewardship. Now stewardship, as many of you guys know, plain and simple, just simply means to be entrusted with somebody else's possessions. And so what Jesus is trying to to illustrate to us, he says, if you want to know what my economy is like, if you want to know what reality is like by following me, you have to understand stewardship. And that's this, that everything that we have, everything is from God. And the Bible is, is is so clear on this in so many passages, this topic of stewardship. Everything we have, all of your money, all of your possessions, all of your time, all of your abilities, all of it, God's. The idea of ownership is a myth in God's economy. We don't own anything. We're stewards of everything. So let me give you a couple of verses. If you don't believe me, I'll just give you a couple. Here's one, Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses 17 and 18. Moses writes and he says, you may say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who even gave you the ability to produce your wealth. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, remember, God gave you your abilities. See, for some of you, I I, I totally get this, all right? When When I say to you, everything belongs to God, everything. Some of you bristle against that. And quite honestly, the reason you probably bristle against that is because you might be thinking to yourself, well, hold on a minute, dude. I worked, I worked hard for what I got, all right? I am a talent. I, I, I worked my way up the ladder in my corporation. I went through the school. I put my time in. You understand that? I graduated the top of my class. I worked hard. And let me just say that if, that's, if you bristle against that and that's what you think, did you work hard? Yeah, you sure did. You did. I'm not, I'm not undermining that. But listen, you worked hard with the energy that God gave you, with the opportunities that he's provided you, with the intellect that he has bestowed on you, with the family environment that he allowed you to grow up in, in this time, in this culture, with the breath that he lets you have and the health that he entrusted to you. Listen, do you, you understand? That's what, that's, what, that's what he's saying in this passage. He's saying, don't, don't say by my hard work, I accumulate all this. No, no, no. God's the one who even gave you the ability, man. And, and listen, do you guys understand how fragile we are? We are so fragile. Each and every single one of us are half a teaspoon of chemicals in our brain away from being insane. That's all it takes. We're fragile, man. We're weak. And so God says, everything that you have is from me. It's been given to you by me. It's, it's not ownership, it's stewardship. Here's another verse to kind of validate the same thing. First Corinthians 4, 7, the apostle Paul says, for who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? 
You see what Paul's saying? This is so good. He says, everything that we've been given, everything that, that we have has been given to us by God. And so why would we boast about something that isn't ours? How dumb is it if I, to boast about something that isn't ours? Imagine if I came to your house and I just started boasting about it. I was like, oh, this is my favorite room in my house. You'd be like, dude, what are you talking about? This is my house, you know? And that's what, that's what this passage is saying. It's saying, why do you boast about something? It's not even yours. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? It's the idea of stewardship. And so Jesus says, you want to know what my economy's like? You want to know what it's like in my kingdom? It begins by understanding that you are a steward of everything that God has entrusted to you. And so he gives to one servant five bags of gold, to one two bags of gold, to one one. And we're told that two of the guys, the first two, are good stewards. They go out and they put their master's money to work. The third guy, however, does a weird thing. To us, it makes no sense. He goes out and he buries his money, digs a hole, buries it. Now check out what happens next. Verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and he settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His servant's response, he replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. Look, I've gained two more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will now put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And I think it's probably good for us to pause here. I want to point something out. It's kind of obvious, but I think it's worth mentioning. Notice both of these guys are good stewards, even though they're entrusted with different amounts. One guy has five bags of gold, which was a very substantial amount of money. The other guy had two bags of gold, which was also a very substantial amount of money. The Bible says that both of them were faithful. And do you notice, even though they had different amounts, the Bible tells us that the master's response to them was exactly the same. Good job. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were trustworthy with a few things. I'll put you in charge of a lot of things. Come and enter into my happiness. And you guys, that points out something that's kind of obvious, but it's a really good point. And we talked about this last week. It doesn't matter how much or how little you've been entrusted with. That has nothing to do with godliness. We talked about that last week. How much or how little wealth you have has nothing to do with godliness. It's all about what you do with it. And that's important because, listen, that keeps us from the comparison trap that many of us fall into. You guys know how that works. We look at other people. We say, well, if I had what they had, well, then maybe I would be able to give in a more, maybe I'd be, you know, a better steward if I just had more like that person does. The Bible says, don't you worry about them. Don't you worry about them. See, stewardship frees us from the comparison trap of having to look at other people and size ourselves up against them because stewardship is concerned with what should I do with what God has entrusted to me? And I like the way John Ortberg puts it. John Ortberg is an author. He said this way, this was good. He said, at the end of the day, God's not going to ask you why you didn't lead someone else's life or invest someone else's gifts. He's not going to ask, what did you do with what you didn't have? Though he's going to ask you, what did you do with what you did have or what you had, what, what I gave you? And that's the truth. One day we're all going to give an account, but not for someone else's stuff, not for someone else's money, not for someone else's life, but for our own. That's what the Bible says. So check this out. 
Verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. I went out. I hid your your gold in the ground. So here it is. Here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. So then when I returned, I would at least have received it back with interest. Now, what I find so fascinating here, by the way, and, and I know, like I said, many of you are familiar with this passage, but I don't know if you've ever noticed this. What I found so fascinating was why his master was frustrated with him. Do you notice this? The parable doesn't go like this. It's not like one guy had five, one guy had two, and one guy had one, and the first two did a good job, and the other one went off and squandered it, just spent it all on a bunch of junk on eBay, right? That's not how the parable goes. The Bible says he just hit it. Nor did, listen, the third guy didn't go and invest it and then fail in his investment. That's not what happened. The reason that the master is so frustrated and aggravated with guy number three in this parable is, listen, because he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. He's like, you, you buried my money. You just put it in the ground. You, you, you covered it with dirt, and you didn't even give it any of your mind or any of your attention. You put it out of your mind, and you didn't even think of me. Didn't even cross your mind. You see, see this is what I found so interesting the reason that he was frustrated with this manager, the third one, is because he didn't even have a plan. He didn't even have a plan. You could have at least put it in the bank because if you would have put it in the bank, then it would have at least gained like, you know, like 1% interest or whatever the bank is making these days, you know. At least would have gained something. But, but you put it in the ground. You didn't even think about it. There was no plan in place. You lazy servant, that's what he tells him. And you guys, this brings out, I think, a really, really important practical point, because here's the reality. It's not enough to simply understand the principle of stewardship. It has to show up in practice. In other words, you got to have a plan. If you are genuinely a steward of somebody else's money, you have to have a plan. And that brings me to a very, 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 very practical question that I need to ask. And this is a question, by the way, only for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a person who's investigating the whole God thing, honestly, this question isn't for you. And so you can just listen in and, and, and let everyone else feel awkward. You don't have to, all right? But, but this is the question that I want to ask you if you're a follower of Jesus. Do you have a stewardship plan? Do you have one? Now, notice I didn't ask you, do you have a financial plan? Most of us do. Most of us have a great financial plan, man. We've worked hard on it. We have a 401k, we have a retirement strategy, we have our investments, we have our money tied up in these things, we have this real estate thing over here. Most of us have a great money plan. We have college savings going on. For many of us, we have a great financial plan, but that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, do you have a stewardship plan? If it's God's money, is that showing up? in the plans yet. For some of you, you don't have a financial plan, right? For some of you, your plan is I swipe my credit card and at the end of the month, I check my, my thing and if it's in the red, I stop spending. If it's in the black, I keep going. That's what I do. That's my plan. And, and I'm just saying, listen, if, we, if, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and it is true that we are stewards of everything that God has entrusted to us, we have to have a plan, man. Think about it this way. Just think about it this way. 
Imagine that you hired me as your financial manager, which by the way is a bad idea. Don't do that, all right? But let's say you hired me as your financial manager and you said, okay, dude, here's the deal. I'm going to give you $20,000 and I want you to go invest that for me, all right? So put my money to work, get it in the market, throw it towards some investments for me, and that's going to be it. So let's say I'm like, okay, I took your money, I grab it, you come back a year later and you're like, um, so tell me, how's my money doing? And I'm like, uh, I don't really know. You're like, what do you mean you don't know? I'm like, I don't know. I put it in a shoebox. I threw it under my bed. I don't know. And you're like, well, you, well, you did what? Yeah, I haven't even been thinking about it. It's just been kind of under my bed. That's, that's all I've been. You'd be, you'd be like, what's the, what is your plan? I'm like, I don't really have a plan. You know what you would tell me? I know what you would tell me. You would tell me, you're fired. You are a terrible financial manager. You are so lazy, dude. You should have at least done something with my money, right? And, and, and listen, if, if, if it is true that we are genuinely stewards of what God has given us, then the principle applies that you can't just know the principle and it's got to show up in practice. You've got to have a plan. You've got to have a stewardship plan. And so having said that, I want to get real practical. And I want to talk to those who follow Jesus about how do you develop a stewardship plan. Some of you have one. Some of you might not. And so if you don't, you're like, how do I do that? Well, let me just show you a very, very practical way that I think is helpful to, to develop a stewardship plan. Now, what I'm about to show you, just going to let you know, is very broad level, all right? So I'm not going to get into the specifics of how to create a budget and, and all those type of things for a couple reasons. First off, because we don't have time. And secondly, because I'm not a financial guru, all right? There's people that are way way smarter than me, that know way more about this than I do. So I'm just going to give you broad level principles. If you're looking for more details, check out Financial Plan or Financial Peace University. It is really awesome. Uh, my wife and I did that right when we got married. It was super helpful. Uh, Crown Financial, there's a bunch of resources that are out there. But I just want to give you broad level, broad scale, how should we think as stewards of our money. Now, to do this, I want to give a, a, just a kind of a, 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 an illustration I want to kind of show you what this, what, how this pans out. And this is an illustration. I'll just be straight with you. I flat out hijacked. I stole this um, from a guy that I saw do this about 10 years ago by the name of Andy Stanley. Uh, as a pastor down in Georgia. He did this illustration. I've tweaked it for our purposes. But um, the reason I'm showing this to you is because 10 years ago when I saw this, it was so helpful to me. And, and I actually shared it with a bunch of people and it was so helpful to them. And so my hope is that it would be helpful to you. Now, let me just say that if you're a financial person, this is gonna be insultingly simple, all right? And so don't be offended by that. It's just very, very simple. But I will say this, that if you are a parent and you're trying to instill good financial values into your kids, this is something awesome that you can do with them because it's really simple. Okay, so I brought with me 10 single dollar bills. I asked for 20s, but they wouldn't give it to me. And so I got 10 singles, all right? And this, for our purposes today, represents your income, all right? This is your salary, whatever it is that you collect. This is your paycheck that you have. Now, I hope you're making more than this. Um, but if you're not, then this is extremely practical for you, okay? Because it's just, okay. So anyway, this is going to represent your, your finances, your money. So how do we, if for those of us who follow Jesus, and I know not everybody does, but for those of us who do, how do we then view this like a steward? How do we start viewing this differently? All right, so let me give you a couple things. Here's the first thing, and I'd say it this way. We need to start by thinking about priorities first, okay? This sounds so simple. We need to plan priorities first. Now, as, as you guys know, in life, with your calendar, your time, with your money, priorities always have to go in first. You gotta put the big things in first. 
It's just the way life works. And, and so as it relates to our money, we have to think priorities first. Now, if we are genuinely, for those of us who follow Jesus, if we are genuinely stewards of what God has entrusted to us, that means that God is first priority. The Bible talks about this idea, by the way, of, of first fruits. It's something we see in Scripture. Let me just give you a couple of passages on this to kind of help you think about it. One is in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon says, Honor the Lord your God with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. So the Old Testament basically would teach us this. It would say, back in this time, God would, would t- tell his people, I want you to give me first and best. Give me the first and the best. So, so in this time, people were farmers, um, and the way that they would accumulate wealth was with their, with, their, uh, with, with their grain. So God says, give me first and best of that. Some of these people were into agriculture. Um, they would raise sheep. They'd raise goats, those kind of things. God says, give me your first and your best. This is the principle of first fruits. We see the same principle, by the way, apply in the New Testament. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, for example. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. So we're told in Corinthians. Again, there's the same idea. The idea there is God gets first. God gets best. All right. Now, why does the Bible tell us this? Why does the Bible tell us that God wants, for those of us who follow him, wants first and best? He wants the first fruits. Well, here's why. It's not because God wants your money. God doesn't need your money. All right. God owns everything. He made everything. He doesn't need your money. So, so why is it then that God wants his people to give first and best? Well, here's why. Because God wants our hearts. God, God is after our heart. That's why Jesus said where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. Because he knew that the way to your heart was through your money. This is the language of our heart. So the Bible says, give to me first. And here's why that's, that, why that's so important. I believe that the first thing that you're inclined to give your money to, the first thing, is probably the thing that has the most control over you. Think about it for a minute, all right? If you're like, okay, I wanna, I wanna give to God first, but first I gotta make sure that my bills are okay, and then I gotta make sure my investments are safe, and then I gotta make sure this thing is good. Listen, what have you just said? For those of us who are followers of Christ, here's what we've just said. We said, I don't believe that God is the one who provides for me. I think that I do that for myself and I gotta make sure I get myself covered and then if there's anything left, then I will give God what's first. For some of us, the first thing that our money goes to, the first thing, right, it's to, it's to entertainment, it's I'm going out to the movie, it's I'm going out to eat. If I have anything left at afterwards, then that's what I'm gonna, and listen, it says something about our heart is what it does. And so the reason God says first and best, this priority needs to come in first is because he knows that when we do that, we are cutting loose the cords that wealth oftentimes has on our heart. Listen, you wanna be free from the anxiety and fear that you feel around this issue. You wanna be free from the relational tensions that you have in your marriage in this issue. Trust God first. Give God first and best because he knows when you do that. Listen, if, if right now you're experiencing anxiety and worry and relational tensions around money, the, the issue is that you need to change your heart. And if you need to change your heart, the Bible tells us you got to change your money. You got to change your money. Give first to God. First. First fruits, okay? So having said that, what does that look like practically speaking? Okay, so first thing is plan your priorities first. Here's the second thing I would say. The second thing I'd mention is plan percentage giving. Practice percentage giving. All right, so again, this is a biblical kind of idea. By percentage giving, by the way, here's what I mean. 
I don't mean um, give it an amount. I would say not amount, percentage. Don't think amount, think percentage because income changes, right? Think percentage. Um, not sporadic, not impulsive, but give percentage. It's kind of what the Bible teaches us. And this is a principle that's built off of an Old Testament thing that we see called the tithe. And back in the Old Testament, God would command his people. He said, listen, I want you to give me first and best. I want you to give me 10% right off the top of, of your income. Now, the reason God did this again, remember, is because he wanted his people to test his faithfulness. As a matter of fact, the book of Malachi in chapter three, it says this, God says, I want you to bring me the whole tithe. And then I want you, look at this. He says, test me in this. This is the only passage in all of scripture where God says, test me. Everywhere else in the Bible, he says, don't test me. But here he says, test me in this. Bring me your tithe. And then he says, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. And what God says is this. He says, I want you to test me in this area. And by the way, some people have taken this verse and they've, they've, they've said, well, see what God says? If you give God $100, he's gonna give you $1,000. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's how it works. But I think what he's saying is, test me and come and find that I will provide for you. I am faithful to do it. So the Old Testament is the tithe. In the New Testament, the tithe is no longer a law. But we see that the the principle of generosity applies. So here's the principle. Be a percentage giver. So what does that look like? Here's what it looks like. I get my paycheck. I get my salary. Percentage off the top first to God. That's my tithe. That goes to God, right? Now, let me say something else about the tithe because some people have asked me, well, are you telling me then that I need to give a percentage to the church? Is that what you're saying? I see, I see where this whole thing's going. I see what you're doing here. And listen, let me just say definitively the answer to that question is no. No. The Bible explains to us that this principle, that my percentage that goes to God, the Bible says it this way, that when I do this, I am being rich towards God. Okay, and what does it mean to be rich towards God? Here's what it means. It means that I'm putting his interests, I'm putting his desires, I'm putting his, his, um, his motivations, those things, I'm putting those things first because it's his money. And so I wanna put it towards his interests. And what is God interested in? Well, the Bible tells us. The Bible says, for example, in one place that God cares for the orphan and widow. For people who are in a situation that they are unable to help themselves, God cares for them. You know what the Bible says? This is so awesome. The Bible says, if you lend to the poor or if you give to the poor, you are lending to the Lord. That's what it says. You're giving to the interests of God. You're being rich towards him. Now, of course, that also includes things like ministries that propel the message of the gospel. If you're part of the Medina East Campus, it makes sense if you're part of the family that we together financially involve ourselves in the mission of what's happening here. But let me just say this, that this this percentage that you decide is not just for the church, it's for God. And you and God got to figure that out. You got to figure out where this is going and how that all works, okay? Because the idea here is being rich towards God. So let me even say this, that if, if, you're, if you're hearing this conversation and the only way you hear it is this guy wants my money, don't give anything here. Don't. Give it to something else, all right? Because the principle is be rich towards God, okay? Off the top. Now, let me say another thing. Some of you right now are in debt. And, and one of the questions I get, consumer debt, um, student loans, One of the questions I get from people a lot of times is, should I practice percentage giving if I'm in debt? Because it's someone else's money, you know, and I don't know, should I just pay that off? Let me just, probably the best advice I've ever heard on this, I would tell you is this, all right? First and foremost, get a debt annihilation plan. 
just get on one um, and then work it. You got to stick to it. But things like Financial Peace University are brilliant, brilliant ways to get out of debt. So get on a debt annihilation plan, absolutely. But in the same breath, I'd also tell you this. You probably need to start practicing percentage giving if you're a follower of Jesus. Why? Because it's a habit and it's an issue of the heart. And so even if that percent is 0.00001% of your income, if you're like, I give a nickel, that's what I give to the things of God. It's an awesome starting place. And as you find yourself releasing out of debt, this will allow you to continue to be more generous towards God, to, to be generous towards the things of God, okay? So principle number one is, okay, this is my paycheck. This is, this is what I got. This is my salary. Off the top, percentage giving to God. You determine the percentage to God, all right? Here's the second thing. Practice percentage savings. Practice percentage. Determine out of the gate I want to put X amount of percentages, not amounts, not amounts, because your income's going to change, right? What is the percentage I want to put into savings? Now, this, believe it or not, is a biblical idea. Um, we looked at a parable last week where, um, where, you guys might remember, there was a man who saved and saved and saved and saved and saved. You remember this? And then God showed up one day and took his life, and God said to him, you're a fool. And see, a lot of people look at that passage and they say, see, God doesn't want us to save our money. God doesn't like that. But that's not true. That's to misunderstand that passage. That passage is telling us not to put our hope in money, but to be generous towards God. But the Bible tells us that saving is a very wise thing. So take a look at this passage in Proverbs. I love this passage. Proverbs, uh, what is it here? Go to the next slide there. If you want to, Proverbs chapter six, check this out. Take a lesson from the ant, you lazy bones. I love, I love that, by the way. Take a lesson from the ant, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer gathering food for the winter. What he says is, think about the ants, dude. They know winter is coming, you lazy bones. And so they get to work, right? And so in the same way, if you know winter is coming, it's a wise thing to prepare for it. And the reason the Bible tells us that we should save is not because we should put our security and our hope and our wealth. It's because the second law of thermodynamics is always happening, right? Entropy. Everything is breaking down all the time. Your car is depreciating in our parking lot right now, right? You will drop your iPhone in the toilet at some point. It's going to happen. Life happens, right? And so we have to prepare ourselves by saving. It's a wise principle, the Bible tells us. And when we do this, we also keep ourselves from being an unnecessary burden to other people. So, so we have our money. What do we do? What do we do? Okay, all right, percentage off the top, God, giving it to God. Priority for those of us who follow Jesus. First and best, percentage. Secondly, percentage savings. This is going to go into savings. I'm going to set that aside. Winter's going to happen. Entropy is going to happen. I'm going to need a new roof. It's going to have to happen. Now, I didn't put this in your notes, but this is one I would add in there. The government's just going to take one of these. Okay, they're just going to take one. So God bless America. That's just how that happens. So yeah, they're going to take two, depending on where you're at. So they're going to take some of that stuff, right? That's, that's fine. Now, here's the last principle that I put in here. Now you have to practice percentage living. So now this is what you got. This is what you have to live on. And now you need to practice percentage living. Now, let me just say this. If you don't make a plan for your money, your money is going to plan itself. And it never has a good plan. And that was my entire college career. 
Okay, my money had a plan for me and it wasn't very good, all right? It wasn't until I started putting some of these things in practice that I started to realize the wisdom of this. Practice percentage living. So what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. With what you have left, right? Percentage giving, percentage saving, the government took that. Now what am I supposed to do with this? Practice percentage living. So what's that look like? Determine in advance what percentage, not number, don't think numbers, think percentages, don't think amounts, right? Because your income's gonna change. What percentage of my income do I want to live on? Determine it, 25%. 25% of my income is gonna be my housing, what, my rent or my house or whatever. And what this does, you guys, if you determine this in advance, this is so helpful because what this does is it gives you a concrete number of what you can afford. And so now you don't have to ask, oh, I don't know what I can afford. I don't know what I can afford. Let's ask the loan officer what I can afford. Terrible idea, right? Determine in advance, this is what I'm going to spend. 25%, 20%, whatever it is. This is what we're spending on housing. Determine the percent you're going to spend on your entertainment. 0.05% of my income is going to entertainment. That's awesome then. Go out to eat. Have fun. Go see a movie. But then when you reach that percentage, they'll be like, I'm done. Time to, time to stay home and eat ramen tonight. And they'll watch reruns on Netflix instead of go out to movies. That's what I'm going to do now because I've, I've reached that percentage. So you have to make a plan as it relates to these things. Now, this brings up another question that I think is worth addressing. A question that happens often as it relates to money talks that I get from people is questions about, is it wrong for a person who follows Jesus to own this type of car? Is it wrong for a person who's a follower of Jesus to own this type of house and this type of zip code? Is it wrong for a Christian to go on this type of vacation? I get these questions a lot. And here's, my, here's, here's the answer. There is no clear answer to this. It, it's so circumstantial. And, and again, it's because money is not evil. It is not, it is not moral or immoral. It's amoral. Same with cars, same with houses, same with zip codes, same with vacations. There's no moral attachment to those things. I would say that if you are giving, percentage giving, saving, percentage savings, government took theirs, you're not cheating on your taxes, if you're doing those things and you can enjoy certain things with this in a reasonable way, in a responsible way, by the grace of God, I think that we should be able to enjoy some of the good gifts that God has given us without guilt. Without guilt or without fear. And, and, and listen, just like many of you are good parents, God is a good father and he wants his children, he wants to give good gifts to his kids. Just like you guys do. Don't, isn't it true? Don't you love giving good gifts? I love giving good gifts to my kids. Now, I hate it when they act like spoiled brats. I hate it when they act entitled and self. I hate that. God does too. But I love giving good gifts to my kids, especially when they can enjoy them, right? And in the same way, by God's grace, I think, man, if you can do this, if you can live, respond, if you're doing this and you're doing this, then enjoy it. Enjoy what God has given you. Now, 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 in the same breath, I think it's also important for me to say this because there is some danger to this stuff. If, if, you're not, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're not regularly asking the question, how can I simplify my life so that I can be more generous towards God? If you're never asking that question, I think it's a question you ought to start asking. At least once a year. At least once a year. Sit down and say, I need to develop a stewardship plan. Okay, okay. And, and then say, you know what? You know what? I... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see, instead of just like, you know, my income's growing, I graduated college and now I'm, I got a real job or 
you know, now we paid off the mortgage or I got a promotion at work and I got more income. And you know what? You know what? Rather than simply trying to live according to my income, what if instead I just said, you know what? I'm done here. I'm an, I, and instead, I'm just going to increase my generosity plan towards God. What, what if you did that? And this brings me to my, my, the last thing I'm going to say, and then I promise we're done, is this, is I think that as stewards, we need to make a plan to increase our generosity. We need to be asking the question, how can I simplify my life to be more generous to God? Now, I'm not, now, hear me on that. What I'm saying is, if you can enjoy the good gifts that God has given you, enjoy them without guilt, okay? But ask the question sometimes. Can I simplify my life? Maybe for some of you, you're like, you know what? Next year, man, I'm, right now I'm, I'm, I'm 5%. I'm giving 5% towards the things of God. You know what my goal is next year, man? I'm gonna give six. I wanna be more generous towards God, towards the things of God. Some of you are like, man, I'm at 10. What if I was at 20%? What if I was that? What if, I, what if instead of getting the second house or what if instead of getting the summer house or what if instead of getting the boat or what if instead of, get, what if instead of getting the new car, I got the used car? And what if I just said I'm gonna be generous towards God? That's what I wanna do. I think that's an awesome question to be asking because here's the truth and we're gonna talk about this next week. That everything you give to God, the Bible says, this is so powerful. The Bible says every time you give to God, you are laying up treasure for yourself in heaven. You know what the Bible, I love that verse. Yeah, I told it to you earlier. You know what the Bible, did you guys catch that? The Bible said when you give to the poor, you, listen to this, you lend to the Lord. You notice that? It doesn't say when you, give to the Lord, when you give to the poor, you give to the Lord. That's not what it says. It says when you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord, which means this, it's coming back to you. Maybe not in this life, probably not in this life. Because who cares about this life, right? In the next life, you're gonna lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. And the Bible says that as we become rich towards God, as we become more and more rich towards God, the strangest things happen to our heart. Our heart starts to change. And the worry and the anxiety and the fear and the insecurity and the tensions that we feel relationally, they begin to become unwoven in us and we become free. Stewardship, not ownership. We are stewards of everything that God has given us for those who have followed, who followed Jesus Christ. And I think when we start to put this into our lives, listen, stewardship is not just a principle we understood. It's a practice that requires a plan. And so let's go and make a plan. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Um, the truth is, Father, that this is, man, this is not the easiest conversation, honestly, because it, I think for many of us, it kind of hits, it hits us right in the heart. Money issues, like you said it, they, they deal with our heart. And yet, Father, I know for so many of us, the anxiety, the fear, the relational tensions, Many of us are enslaved to things that are related to money. And God, I know you want us to be free. You want us to be free. I thank you, God, that you demonstrated to us what true generosity looks like. That you, while, while you had all the power and you had every right as God, you humbled yourself and you made yourself poor. You were generous for our sake. You gave your life. And so because you've done that, I pray that you would make us like you. Help us to be generous like you're generous. Father, I pray for those of us who follow you in this room that you would help us to view ourselves as stewards. We're stewards of everything that you've given us. You've entrusted it to us. And so I pray, God, that we would act in accordance with that. Help us to make a plan, man. Stewardship requires a plan. It requires action. Find us faithful that one day we could hear you tell us, good, well done, good and faithful servant. I've entrusted you with a few things. 
and I will entrust you with many. Come and share in my master's happiness. So God, I just pray these things for us. Help us to go from this place and not just hear your word, but to do it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.